Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with your host, Ken Castrico. Please hit that follow button so that you will not miss another podcast episode. Every episode, we interview an ordinary but extraordinary person on their identity journey. An identity journey is your unique journey that you have taken in your life to get to where you are now. That journey is not only fascinating, but inspiring and encouraging to others. Because others can relate to your struggles and victories, which can give them hope and help them get unstuck. Ultimately, my goal is to empower people not to only understand, but to truly embrace their true selves, unlocking their full potential and living a more authentic and fulfilling life. Knowing who you are can change the way you see the world and others around you. And when you know who you are, you are powerful. Today, my guest is Mary Claire Boucher. I had the pleasure of meeting Mary Claire because of my wife, Diane Castrico. Mary Claire is a longtime family friend of Diane's. Diane and I got acquainted with Mary Claire after seeing her at a meeting that we attend called Hubkin at Adams Hub for Innovation in Carson City, a nonprofit that supports people that are starting and building businesses. We quickly got caught up with our lives and found out that she is also building a business just like us, and we had a tremendous amount in common. Both of us have kids that are adults now, and we're both fulfilling our journeys as empty nesters. It has been fun to share that journey. Mary Claire is the founder and principal of MCB Creative. Mary Claire is a shamelessly proud third-generation Nevadan, and she obtained her bachelor's degree from Northern Arizona University and a World Art History Certificate from the Smithsonian Institution. She has enjoyed a diverse professional career in dynamic environments, including hospitality, entrepreneurship, nonprofit, and marketing. She's a hiking enthusiast, nature lover, fearless hugger, and proud mom to two grown daughters. Mary Claire seeks great joy in ordinary things and believes that to be the key to lifelong happiness. She thinks laughter has healing properties and is known to laugh at herself a lot. <laughs> Please help me welcome Mary Claire Boucher. How are you doing, Mary Claire? I'm doing well. I'm super excited to be here with you today. I am excited that you're here. So we're going to get right into it. I actually met Mary Claire through my wife. They have been family friends for quite some time. How long have you guys been, have you known Diane's mom and dad? Oh. Joe and Carolyn? About 40 years. About 40 years. Yeah, over 40 years ago I met them. Nice. Yeah. So we'll get some good dirt on Diane. <laughs> Today is about you and your identity journey. Mm -hmm. And so I know that you and Diane and I have been closer the last year or so. Yeah. Just because we're in kind of the same space as far as in our lives and you're building a business and uh, I'm building a business uh, along with having a job and Diane obviously has had her business for quite some time. So we we have we have some projects together. You're working with me on some of those projects and it's just been nothing but, but a lot of fun. And I have to say, without your help, I don't know where I'd be right now. This last summer has been a very busy one, and you helped me quite a bit. So thank you so much for that. Well, I absolutely appreciate your faith in me to be a part of that <laughs> journey, for one. And it's it's a blast, honestly, to see. I really feel like it was kismet when I walked in and saw Diane after. I mean, I, I don't think I'd seen her maybe since your wedding. I mean, it had been a very long time since I'd seen oh, you wow. guys. And it was kismet to walk in one day and see her and be like, hey, hey, I know you, I know you. And it just was a really good time. And for us to be in that same place in yeah. our lives, business building and growing, it's been so fabulous to have you guys to bounce 
ideas off of and just really feel like we can expand the space and then be able to support one another personally and professionally. Yeah. I think it's just an honor for me and, yeah. and just really fun. And it's nice to know that, you know, it takes village, right? So yeah. it's good to know that you're on, you know, part of Team MC. I'm very excited about that. I'm excited. Yeah. I'm excited about that. And, I, you know, I want to give props out to the Adams Hub. We're, we're recording in Adams Hub right now. Yeah. And we met Again, you reunited through Adams Hub and yeah. Adams Hub for Innovation down here in Carson City, downtown Carson City has been amazing. Oh, absolutely. So. I, I couldn't do what I have done in the last two years without the support of this place. And it, and this is exactly what it does, right? It fosters these relationships, yep. old and new, and allows yep. us to continue to grow what we're doing and support one another. Yep. And it's the perfect place for that. So yeah. yes, totally kudos to that. Yeah, definitely. Cindy Fensel, who, who is the director down here, is amazing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Anyway, well, let's get into it. Okay. Yeah, uh, you know, when I tell people we're going to talk about your identity journey, and I say, yeah, we're going to start at the beginning, and they say, okay. I mean, I'm talking at the beginning. So, let's go back a little bit. So, four, five years old. Where did Mary Claire come from? And let's start the story. Okay, perfect. I am. I am descendant from kind of an interesting background, which is my mother is was descendant from Scandinavian immigrants to Nevada. So my both my great grandparents came from Sweden and Denmark, respectively, to far eastern Nevada. And then my father is a product of New Orleans, Louisiana. So I grew up with two very different cultures within my own house. I started out living in eastern Nevada in Ely, which is familial home. Yeah. So my Great-grandparents ended up there. Grandmother grew up there. Mother grew up there. And I lived there until my older sister was about school age. And as they do, our parents decided us to move to the big city. So we moved here to Carson City, I think, around the time I was about five. So really, I guess that's kind of where that starts is here. And we lived at the south end of town, which at that time was very, very rural. It's, you know, built up a lot since then. And so I think one of the best things about my early childhood was freedom and open space. And, you know, I mean, being a child of the 70s and Gen X, I think we pride ourselves on the fact that we were all raised slightly with benign neglect, Um, (laughs) (laughs) which for better or for worse, I'm not sure if that's always the best recommended parenting strategy, but that's what we got. But I also think that the beautiful thing about that was my house was surrounded by nothing but fields. And I didn't have, I had some neighbors, but they were very far apart. And the world was my playground. And I don't mean with playground equipment. I mean, you know, going out and building forts and playing in the dirt. And, you know, I knew other kids that would say, oh, we had to come home when the street lights were on. And I was like, we didn't have street lights. You just went home when it was so dark, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. So really, I had a, a lot of tremendous freedom. But I think that helped foster a lot of self-reliance in me yeah. at an early age. And and then the time that I spent with my parents, my mother was an educator and a writer always, and my dad was an air traffic controller. So he worked really weird hours and was not around a ton, but when we were together, we would also do more outdoorsy stuff. So we had an old um, Land Cruiser, 1968 Toyota Land Cruiser, that I loved that car so much. And we would just go bounce around on the hills. What is the Tahoe Rim Trail today? used to be four-wheel drive road and you could actually drive up there and we'd go bounce around up there and pick wildflowers and take a picnic and those were sort of the best things that I remember about being young and being here yeah and then you know I mean stayed here K through 12 all the way through high school same house same neighborhood everything and about the time that I got out of high school I could not wait to get out of this town because I'd completely outgrown it 
and I found myself going to Northern Arizona University in Flagstaff, Arizona. Oh, you went to Northern Arizona? Yeah, go Lumberjacks. <laughs> and made an excruciatingly practical decision in my studies, and I my major is in hotel restaurant management, oh, wow. which is not something a lot of people actually go to college for. I think a lot of people just work their way up, which may have been the more intelligent route. But I knew that I wanted to be in some sort of service industry. I think I also in my young naivete, really romanticized maybe working in a fancy hotel in New York City or something one day, which now looking back is a little bit funny to me. So I went all the way through that and actually had a very successful career working through fine dining and at different inns and different places all the way through college. And I really did want to work in hotels. Unfortunately, at the time I graduated, hotels were not hiring. And so I ended up in the restaurant world, which I think everyone in this world should work either retail or hospitality at some point in their life, because that is an education second to none. You learn everything, all of it at once, usually through a fire hose. Every day is an emergency. There's always something. And I would say that although I lasted in that world for about seven years only, it's absolutely the foundation for the rest of my professional life. Let's talk about that a little bit. So when you say a foundation, what did you what did you learn in the restaurant business that you thought was so incredibly foundational? Was there a couple of things you can go back and say these these couple of things are foundational for me right now? Yeah, I would say the primary one is that customer service is key. You know, restaurant is interesting because it's ultimately it's an intangible experience. People pay you to consume something. They consume it and they pay a bill and they walk away. So, you know, you can have an amazing meal. And if the service is horrible, people aren't going to remember that meal. Now, in an appropriate place, you can have a bad meal with bad service. And sometimes that's kind of fun and campy and it's a coffee shop experience. But that's, that's different. So it really taught me the value of customer service. From a managerial standpoint, I learned every single thing and was expected to do every single thing from soup to nuts. I mean, washing dishes, doing inventory, doing payroll, staffing. I mean, I had and all of it in the same day. It was very rarely siloed. There was a ton of overlap. And so it was that idea of you don't just go to work and do the one thing in your lane, that you have to have a pulse on what everybody else is doing because you never know when you're going to be expected to fill in there, pitch in there. Mm-hmm. You can't, you know, especially in a you know smaller kind of scrappier restaurant setting, you can't just stay in one lane. And I think also <laughs> one of the lessons that ended up being maybe not so fortunate is I think like a lot of people, I was brought up with an insane work ethic. And I learned that being in an industry like that was very dangerous for me because I, given an opportunity, would work myself to death. <laughs> so would you would you call it yourself the, the, the workaholic? The yeah, that, who... that industry really found me in a position to be a workaholic. And one of the reasons why I got out of the restaurant industry uh, – Oddly enough, was I the last restaurant that I managed? I was a general manager of a restaurant in West Hollywood, California. It's a very complicated place to be in the restaurant world. And the demands of it were extraordinarily high. I got a really bad pneumonia and I continued working 
until I literally was in the hospital with a collapsed lung. And that's when I took inventory of my life. I was like, maybe, just maybe, I should find something that has slightly more regular hours. (laughs) So I'm not driven to this point. And that was the very first time that I started evaluating that it might be okay for me to do other things with my life other than just work. And that it was okay for me to pursue other things and that work for the sake of work maybe it's not always the best value and, and that's something I bring. How long did that though. take you to figure that? So when was that? About what, what age? Oh, 24. I was 20. pretty young. I was in charge. I mean, I was a general manager of a restaurant and a staff of 120 people in a $7 million a year restaurant wow. in West Hollywood at 24 years old. Now there's something on the correlation I like to always make. And as a child uh, growing up here in, in Carson city, you guys, you guys traveled a lot. Some, not a time. I mean, via car, sure. And Back that's in, that's yeah. basically what I'm getting at. When, when you travel as a family or you go up and you do four-wheel driving and you do that kind of stuff, I, I always like to make that correlation for people when they've done a lot of that or they've done, they've done a lot of adventuring. Mm-hmm. You have to think on your feet. And I, I see the correlation in a lot of times with people, people I've interviewed, people that I've been friends with. When you go back in there, people that have done a lot, mm-hmm. people that are very driven, can do a lot of things, they usually have traveled quite a bit. Well, it's, it's funny that you say that because so much of the travel that I did as a kid, I would spend summers in southern Louisiana with my grandparents that lived down there, which is a whole other different kind of being out in the country because they lived on the bayou and, you know, that was a different level of resilience and go entertain yourself. But here in Nevada, traveling back and forth across what we all know is, you know, Highway 50, the loneliest mm-hmm. highway in America, yeah. Yeah. I've traveled that road my entire life. And, you know, now there's mostly cell phone service. Then you couldn't even get FM radio all the way across the state. Right. And so there I was brought up with this sense of you need to be prepared and take care of yourself. So to this day, I don't travel across the state without extra water pair of walking shoes you know like they're just things you don't do because you don't know what's going to happen yeah yeah i'm that weirdo that carries an (laughs) atlas i have a road atlas in my car because i you know i might want to go someplace and there might not be cell phone service right you have an atlas i do i carry a road well i carry a u.s road atlas but then i also carry a nevada topo map because i'll be out again going back and forth to 50 on 50 to Ely to see family. And I'll be like, oh, I wonder where this road goes. Crack open the map. I can take that road and I'll do it. That's awesome. Which I wouldn't do if I didn't have a map and I couldn't see where it was going to go. Right, right. Because your Google is not going to help you out there. It's going to do harm more more harm than good. Right. So you're, you're at a restaurant, you're, you're, you're in West Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And so where does it go from there? So from there, I ended up stumbling into the coolest job ever. I did human resources for the Los Angeles Firemen's Relief Association, which oh, is wow. the nonprofit organization that manages all the benefits for the LA City Fire Department. And it was the coolest job in the crappiest neighborhood in LA. Thankfully, we had a locked parking garage. <laughs> but I, it was really nice because I went from this extreme of the restaurant industry that was just so intense all of the time to a more appreciative environment in which I really could get to know my coworkers kind of as a team. And I had, you know, bosses that were very 
just lovely people and I really felt valued and the benefits were great and I ate in some of the best restaurants in all of LA because firefighters love their food (laughs) and uh, yeah so I stayed in that job until I had my first child and then when I had my first child I knew I was not going to raise kids in LA so my husband at the time and and said baby when she was three months old we moved back here to Nevada because this is, was home to me, and this is where I knew I wanted to raise my kids. So we moved to Douglas County, and that was 1999. We moved back to Douglas County and stayed there and, you know, just did our thing, and we're working. And the whole entire time, my husband, he was in the National Guard and had been. He had been in the regular Army, and he was in the National Guard. And, you know, we just kind of planned to live our, our life with, you know, a couple kids and a dog and a fence and all that good stuff. And unfortunately, September 11th happened. And I would say that that, in a really, in a tangential way, changed the tra- trajectory of my whole entire life. Oh, wow. Not necessarily because we lost anybody or any of that, but because he, from that point forward, was deployed repeatedly as a National Guardsman. This is something a lot of people don't know or recognize if they weren't in that world. But the National Guard was really only ever meant to defend the homeland here in the United States. But after 9-11, because there was so much pressure put on the regular military so quickly, they started deploying National Guard units to either backfill units here in the States or to go overseas in a way that the National Guard was never meant to. So much so they actually had to change laws in order to put the National Guard in that position. And so from that point on, over the course of many years, about 10 years, my girl's father was gone almost all the time. I mean, when we added it up at some point, it was gone back, gone back, and he couldn't hold a regular civilian job, even though it's you know, now I think it's easier for guardsmen because we've paved that way. But then, you know, when he got called up the first time, his employer fired him, which is patently illegal. But at that point, there was no way to fight that then. That has changed. So overnight, we lost two-thirds of our income because he left his corporate job. And uh, that led me to then I started working for a company in Minden, you know, trying to arrange, you know, some benefits and some whatnot for us and did a lot of solo parenting of my two girls. So how many years did you guys live out here in Douglas County when you were single parenting, basically? Yeah. So we lived here in Douglas County for 12 years until then after 2008, you know, the economy got really bad here because everything was attached to the residential housing market. Mm -hmm. And then my mom, who I was my mother's primary care um, giver for the last couple of years of her life, and then my mom ended up passing away. And it was really hard to find a way to make a living here at that time. And we had an opportunity come up. He had a friend who had a job offer for him to do more Department of Defense work overseas, but it required that when he was in the United States that we live in Virginia. So we made the hard decision to actually move to the East Coast. And I had never been east of the Mississippi before I moved my family, you know, over 3,000 miles in middle school. Not a popular time. Not a good time to move your kids in middle school. <laughs> My oldest kid didn't talk to me for about a year. <laughs> it's fine. It's such a challenging time anyway. It is. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So moving your family across the country, did that Im- 
did you ever see him again? I mean, did you see him a lot, or was he always deployed, even um, when you were he, there? He continued to deploy off and on for three more years once we were there. And then and then at some point, he realized that he had a, a trip to Baghdad, and he was in Baghdad for six months, and came back and was like, I can't do this anymore. This is a young man's game, and I just know if I go back again, I won't make it home. And I was like, okay, you're done. You're done then. So he wrapped that up. And during that time, my kids had grown up and had become pretty self-sufficient, and I had found myself some work that was putting me on a very positive, you know, sort of professional trajectory, making up for some time I felt that I had lost early on. And he, um, yeah, so then he was home full-time, which, you know, the uh, statistic of military couples that go through one deployment, it's a 75% divorce rate. By the time it was all said and done, I think we counted that it was seven deployments that he had oh, done wow. between the National Guard and then actually after he got out of the Guard, then he continued to deploy with the Department of Defense as a civilian contractor. And unfortunately, despite our efforts, it's that's just a lot of time apart from one another, and, and our marriage really suffered because of that. Yeah. 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 So let's go back to the kids a little bit. Yeah. So they were born here in Nevada, or they were... Born in L.A. The oldest one was born in L.A., but I got her here as quick as I could. (laughs) Yeah, so she moved here when she was three months old. And then my younger daughter was actually born here in Carson Tahoe. Oh, right. Yeah, making her fifth generation Nevadan. Wow. Yeah. Okay, that's awesome. And how are they doing now? What what are they up to? They're doing well. So eldest is getting ready to start graduate school in Santa Cruz for science communication. She did her undergraduate in Buffalo, New York, and got a very specific degree, which is animal behavior, ecology, and conservation. So it's biology, but more, less veterinary focused and more on the conservation of species where they are. And she wants to do science communication. She's always said she kind of wants to be the next Bill Nye the science guy because she wants to get everybody excited about science. And that's where she's headed there. And then youngest just graduated with her bachelor's degree in history from the College of William and Mary, and she's in the process of studying, going crazy, studying for her LSAT because she would like to go to law school next year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they're doing great. I'm always on the border of being a braggy mom because, <laughs> you know, they have done tremendous work, and they have just made me proud at every turn. And it's interesting because I think they had the best of both worlds, that they got to grow up in Douglas County with the same wide open space and freedom which is, you know, freedom to make mistakes and get out of it and play. And I was never a helicopter mom over them when I was there because I didn't have to be. It was a very, very safe place. And they got to run free and, and run wild. We cheese like little coyotes. But then when, when they got to be older and we moved to the city and we lived in a suburb of Washington, D.C., they got to really have their horizons broadened through the phenomenal amount of cultural diversity and history and just so many more opportunities were afforded to them because of where they were. So I think that they really have a neat background in that, that they can understand both the rural and the urban life and use it hopefully to their advantage to make them really, really well-rounded human beings. That whole idea of traveling out, I mean, sometimes it doesn't work out too good for people, but I'll tell you, the ones that really do embrace the change and I know you said your daughter didn't talk to you for a little while, but I mean, I believe that there is so much that our kids can learn from that travel. And it always goes back to the travel. Travel is moving 
taking up 10 stakes, putting it someplace else, having to adapt to a new culture, a new, everything is so hard. And I mean, some people have never ever even experienced that. Yeah, I, I think one of the things that I am, that I really see too, is not only were they given a really phenomenal public school education in Virginia, which I think will serve them well, and did in help, helping them get into college, but I think because they were exposed to so many different kinds of people, and not only people from different backgrounds, different countries, but different, really significantly different socioeconomic status and understanding the complexities of city life. And I think it's made them incredibly tolerant people. They both, I think because they've been around that as young people, I, I think one of the gifts of that is they are incredibly tolerant of others that are don't look like them, don't act like them, have a different background from them. And I think that is one of the biggest blessings of being out and around and seeing a bigger, broader mm -hmm. world. So this time in Virginia, what, uh, what would you say was some of the biggest takeaways that you got from moving to Virginia? Let's just start with, what are some things that had happened that, that uh, were challenging for you? Oh, gosh. Well, it's a lot of city. And I worked in Washington, D.C., just blocks from the White House and the Treasury and in the middle of everything. And I had, you know, the soul-sucking commute. And, and no matter how I tried to divide it up, whether it was a bus or a car or a train or a metro or whatever, it was an hour, on a good day, an hour door-to-door, -door and it was 13 miles. It's horrible. What did um, you do? So the first job I had that I loved was I actually was the chief of staff to the O of the USO of Metropolitan Washington. So the USO is a nonprofit organization that supports the military. So in a lot of ways, it was kind of in my wheelhouse since I had spent a lot of time being an army wife. And I was pretty, you know, passionate about supporting soldiers and sailors and airmen when they needed it. And that's the mission of the USO. And specifically in Washington, D.C., I got to have some of the coolest experiences and meet some of the most amazing people through that job. And I really, really enjoyed that job. One of the challenges was that the CEO was a very, using a very friendly term, a very dynamic individual. <laughs> and I think what happens in nonprofit is you hit a ceiling at which it's like, I can't do this job anymore because it's burning me out, but there was no place else for me to go. And I, there was an opportunity for me to move into the position of the COO spot for the organization that I felt I was very qualified to do. And but she, I did, you know, I was so good at my job, basically being her, her chief that she didn't want me to move on. So I made that hard decision for myself to move on. And then also when I decided to make that change, I thought, well, okay, I have kids I need to put through college. So I decided to leave the nonprofit world and go into the very for-profit world of commercial real estate development. Oh, wow. In D.C., which looks a lot different than commercial real estate development does here. It's, you know, very big, sexy marble buildings and with really high budgets and crazy rents. And the company I worked for, I did corporate brand management for them. So that's kind of, yeah, it was, I managed between 16 and 20 different individual brands and all of the collateral that they had for each distinct building identity. Well, we're kind of talking about identity and personality because then we would take that building and basically sell it to brokers so then they could take it out and try to find people to lease it and that was through you know lobbyists and attorney firms and high-end associations and, and so that's how I ended up you know moving into the marketing 
realm. So when you say that when you moved to Virginia, it basically changed the trajectory of your of your life. Hands down. And so what how, describe that trajectory. Where were you going before and now the trajectory is So before we moved to Virginia, I think because the economy, well, for a couple reasons, because up to that point I had done work that I could do, mostly administrative work that I could do that allowed me a lot of flexibility with my kids because they were little. I was an office manager for um, an engineering firm in Minden. Still great friends with those folks today. And I was doing sort of administrative type things like that. And then when the economy got really bad in 2008, I was like, you know, this administrative thing isn't going to work. I might have to go back to school. So I looked at going back to school maybe for nursing or something along those lines that I knew was going to be an industry that was going to grow because I just couldn't fathom that I was going to be able to get work here when the economy was so bad. Right. Well, so then we moved to D.C. and it is a really interesting magic bubble where the effects of the economy are so padded there. It's just, it, it doesn't, economic downturn happened there-ish sort of, but not nothing like it happened in the rest of the country. So there were just many more opportunities and I felt like I was able to carve my path and rather than my circumstances guide me, I was able to guide my circumstances. Interesting. And after being a nonprofit, which I, I really liked nonprofit, but there is a pretty high burnout factor in oh, that yeah. because it's, it's so passionate and what you do there, it requires a lot of emotion behind it. And that takes a toll and the compensation isn't always there as, you know, as I think a lot of people in nonprofit know. So then when I decided to leave that world, I was like, well, what do I want to do? And I was like, you know, I really want to be in a creative field. I'm a creative person and I will do what it takes to get my door just somewhere where I can work myself into some planks that is more creative than this, that isn't just managing things and people. And, and, and so I very intentionally picked a path, did some coaching. I had a, a coach there that kind of helped me guide that. And then when I went out and managed to craft my resume in such a way that I talked my way into that. And I don't know that I would have been able to do that without the wealth of opportunities that can be afforded. And just the sheer, just sheer number of jobs and possibilities and, and things um, in a city are, are vast. And the other thing that's interesting, I kind of talked about starting with a, a really crazy work ethic. And I was always taught, like many people, just put your head down, if you work hard, you'll be rewarded. Shockingly, when I got to Washington, D.C., I learned that that is true to a point, but that who you know is sometimes more important than what you know. What you know, you know who you know is going to open the door. What you know is going to help you walk through it and get the job. I had so wished I had known that earlier in my life. So it wasn't until I was like 40 that I realized the power of a network. And I think that's also why I was able to kind of craft my path the way that I was uh, yeah. when I was there. Did you see that coming or was it an epiphany after you had the network? Sounds like it was an epiphany after you had it. I think it was an it. epiphany. I, I think it was like, oh, you know, when I had this very, very savvy young coworker when I was at the USO, she was incredibly savvy. Um, and I think she was 23, very young. 
And I remember having a conversation with her, actually when I was looking at colleges for one of my, for my oldest daughter. And I was of the mind of like, who cares where you go to college? It's, a, you know, it's to show you can do a thing for four years. It's, you know, to go in a direction. It's sleep away camp, go learn how to be away from your parents. And she said, no, actually, it's your network for who you're gonna know to set you up for the rest of your life. And I was wow. like, ding, ding, ding. I mean, I don't know why that was such a moment of like, oh, I know people. And then all of the people that I had met at the USO, I started to realize like, I actually have people I could maybe call on to help me get where I really want yeah. to be. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and tap that. And then I started believing my own press. I think that was another thing that was hard for me when I was younger is I just didn't, you know, I worked really hard, but I don't know that I ever thought that anything I did was special or stood out in any way. I since have learned that's not true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so now I started believing my own press and I started believing, you know, there's nothing that anybody has ever handed me that I didn't figure out or couldn't figure out. I think a lot of that goes back to that restaurant world. You're handed something and you have to figure it out. And I always did. And yeah. so I think that's, you know, goes back to that resiliency and that yeah. self, self-reliance. Yeah. And when we talk about identity, it's really amazing. The reason I asked that question about, did you understand what, we were, you were, what was going on? And I will tell you that there's very few people, unless they're taught very early on by their parents or some mentor or figure that has a network, most people are, have a network at their fingertips, don't even know it. Mm-hmm. And... It is very, uh, and I, I've had the same thing going on in my life where uh, some of the same things where I didn't really think my identity wasn't strong enough in myself to know that I had some of this already, like I call it change in your pocket. Mm-hmm. You've got change in your pocket. You, yeah. you, you've got it when you need it. And you haven't made people mad and, and destroyed relationships along the way. There's actually people out there that want to help you. And that's just really fascinating. It's and really I think that's a huge key also is the understanding that when you ask for help, you're not burdening someone in the ask. Most people, right. again, like I say, if you haven't burned the bridge and, you've, and you have done good work, most people are thrilled to help you. Yeah, if they, they want to. If they think that they can in some way. Yep. And I found that most people are very gracious and honest in what they can do. Like... You know, I don't know that I can get you the job, but I can make sure at least a human being sees your resume. Good enough. Right. Or, right. or hey, I, um, you know, think there's someone in this room that I think you maybe should talk to. And I, so I didn't really get that until way later. And the other thing that's crazy is that then being in Washington, D.C. is an awfully big pool of people that know that game and have mastered it long before I did. So then there was a part of me that's like, I'm super behind here. I don't know how to play this game. And then also looking around at some point and realizing the sandbox I'm playing in isn't the one where I want to be impressing the people. Like there's this, they're not my people and lovely, great people I ended up working with in that at the commercial real estate developer, a great group of delightful people, but they just weren't my people. And I think that just comes back to, I'm just not a city girl. Yeah. I just, there's so many cultural differences between where they came from and where I came from 
that it became evident to me that I was like, I just can't stay here anymore. So that's an interesting uh, turn of events as well, right? So you left Virginia yeah. and came back to, to Carson City, right? Yeah, I did. Um, and part of it was always in the plan. When we moved there, I was pretty vocal about this is a temporary situation. Oh, really? I knew I wasn't going to be an East Coaster. I just, I knew that. Um, but I recognized we didn't need to boomerang back and forth because of the kids. And I wanted to finish raising them. And as soon as we got the youngest one through high school, I was like, okay, it's, we, where, what's the plan? What's the plan? What's the plan? Um, and then also the, the corporation I was working for, so DC is also just this rat race, right, of a lot of type A personalities. And I was falling back into that old habit of, of working really, really hard and not necessarily feeling as though I was being compensated for that, the level of work I was producing. And unfortunately, some corporations have a culture of punishing their high performers, which is, you know, oh, look, you're busy. I'll give you more because I know that you can handle it. And I kind of felt like I was falling into that trap of just working really, really, really hard. And at some point I made a decision that, you know what, if I'm ever going to work this hard for anyone, it's going to be for me. Hmm. And so the pandemic happens. And then like all these things just start falling into place. It was like a series of dominoes. I ended up going through a divorce in the middle of COVID which COVID didn't cause that. Obviously, that had been a long time coming, but it just sort of came to fruition then. My kids, I was supposed to be empty nester. They came back from college during COVID in the middle of a divorce. It was a really great time in my life. (laughs) And then I kind of thought, you know what? While all of this is being blown up, I'm just going to blow it all up. I'm leaving. I'm going to move. I don't know what that looks like, but if if everything's going to change, let's change everything So I made my exit plan and I got rid of almost all of my possessions. I put a few things in a storage pod and I got in my car and I left Virginia and I took about two months to move across the country. I drove and saw people, friends, family, I saw things across the country I've always been wanting to see. And I just really, really took my time doing that and very intentionally did not brush up my resume because I was like, you know what? If I brush up my resume energetically, that means I'm going to apply for something. And I don't want that. That's not what I want. I'm going to leave this open. So when I got back here, I started relying on my network of people, friends I'd kept in touch with here in Nevada the whole time. And I went to go have coffee with a dear old friend of mine. His name is Bob Conrad. He's actually the publisher and editor of This Is Reno, which is an independent news source in Reno. And we went to have coffee and I was like, okay, well, tell me what's up. What's, you know, what's going on? What does work look like here? What does the world need? And during the course of that conversation, he's like, oh, I think I could use you. Okay. Sounds great. He's like, yeah, but it's 1099 work. So you're going to need a business license. So I went home, filed for a business license, was like, oh, look at me. I'm (laughs) (laughs) self-employed. Just like that. Just like that. And then what was amazing was that the work I was doing for Bob gave me enough runway, about six months of runway, to then really figure out what I wanted to do. And taking this wealth of experience that I had from all these different places. And then the other thing that I really, really loved when I was in D.C. is the, the arts and culture scene there is 
unbelievable. And I, you know, took full advantage of all of that, knowing that it was going to be temporary. I spent a lot of time in the museums, and I got a World Art History Certificate and took a lot of photography classes and continued to shoot as a hobbyist photographer. So it was great then when he bought me that time for me to figure out, well, what is it I want to do? This, not that, this, not that. And, and then really settle on what I thought was a good mix and a good niche that needed filling that allows me to work really, really hard for no one but me. Nice. Actually, I work really hard for my clients, but <laughs> I'm my own boss, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Yeah, my boss can be a real, real slave <laughs> driver at times. Well, you've... You've started your business, so you actually started your business when? In August of 21, so a little over two years ago. Okay. Yeah. And how has that been? It's been unbelievable. I have enjoyed this experience so much because on one hand, I get to wake up and choose what I do and where I go, and I get to guide it. It's terrifying. I mean, being self-employed is really, really scary work. But the cool thing is that I get to wake up and choose the things that scare me every day, and I know that that means that I'm doing the right thing, that I'm pushing my own envelope, that I'm not settling into, in every other job I've ever had, I have this four-year itch. About four years in, I get what I call busy bored, because I feel like I've mastered the things that there are to master, and then I look around like, okay, what's next? And I don't see much of a path, and I just know that I'm never going to be busy board here because I can drive that train and I can continue to challenge myself and open it up. And I have such a phenomenal group of people that support me. And I, because I know how to work a network now, my primary means of marketing myself has been face-to-face and has been suiting up and showing up. And I am constantly flabbergasted at how well that has been received and at some of the doors that have been opened to me because I've been standing in the right place at the right time, talking to the right person, saying things like, what table do I need to be at? Who do I, who else do I need to be talking to? Who needs these services? Or it, this is a new industry. You know, I, I showed up at places that photographers don't, like manufacturing events, being like, I don't know, maybe people here need this. I, I don't know, and asking a lot of questions and just really being curious about where I might need to be. And then allowing myself flexibility. I know that my job is to pick a direction, have forward momentum in that direction, but then always remain open to what the universe is going to bring to nudge me. And and through the course of that, my my business model has morphed a little bit over the last two years into kind of where I'm at now, which I feel like is a really a really good spot that I can really, now that I'm at the magic two-year mark, I can really double down and really build on. Yeah. Yeah. So confidence-wise going into that, it sounded like, I mean, some people when they go into their own businesses, and I've been one that has been busy board for quite a, my, mm-hmm. quite a long time in my life too. That's a really great word. I love that. I can pretty much figure something out and make sure, I mean, I, I, I get bored pretty easy. But venturing off into building this podcast and doing the things that I'm doing right now, it's, it was hard. It was really hard. So when you said yes to that, you know, 1099, what was going through your mind? For all those people out there that are thinking, man, I really have a dream. I really have something I want to do. And what would be some of the things you'd tell them? Well, to answer your first question, when I will overthink anything, <laughs> given half of a chance. 
classic overthinker? I, which it probably is something that makes me a great entrepreneur because I am very into. Once I move, it might take. I always take time to think through things, but when I move, it's because I've done so intentionally. And so I believe in risk, but I will calculate that risk. Right? I'm not. I don't want to fly by the seat of my pants. So when I applied for my business license. I got on Silver Flume or whatever is the process to, to go get that. And I started to freeze up a little bit be like, oh, my God, there are too many choices. Do I do an LLC? Do I do it? And I started, I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I need a piece of paper. And I just was like, I'll just start as a sole prop because I know I can always change it from here. Mm-hmm. And I clicked all the things, and I printed it off, and I stuck it, you know, because you have to display it publicly. So I stuck that on the wall in my office, and I was like, oh, this is it. I just had the sense of, like, this is what I've been waiting for. This is the door that I needed to open up for me to walk through it to go get everything I've ever wanted, to make everything I've ever wanted, to own this thing. And the next big pivot point was in February of this year, I decided to switch from a sole proprietorship to an S corporation. After much debate and many interviews of many, many people, I was like, okay, I just need to rip the Band-Aid off and make a choice. And the day before I did that, I called one of my friends because, you know, filing an S corp, that is a pretty serious thing. Like, this is a grown up declaration of like, (laughs) I'm a real, you know, corporation now. I'm not just a person over here doing something in my garage. And the day before I did that, I called a friend of mine and said, well, I can either brush up my resume or I can go file these S corp papers. And she said, if you were going to throw in the towel, you have to come down here and say that to my face. She's like, that's not what you're doing. I was like, ah, that's not what I'm doing. I'm too into this. And it's, it is, it's the most exciting thing I've done. The good, the bad, the ugly, it's all, it's overwhelming a lot, but it's also so rewarding when, you know, and I have to eat it in chunks, right? Eat the elephant in small bites because it's so big and I can very, very easily get overwhelmed, but I wouldn't change it. And I know that a lot of that, excuse me, is the sense that if I were to stop now, I would be so filled with regret at the end of being like, well, I could have, what if I just would have, I meant to, I always wanted to. Right. And I know a lot of people don't have that. A lot of people don't, don't feel that call or that pull. And I do. And I just had a sense that if I don't follow this through to whatever its natural conclusion is, that I will totally regret it. Yeah. And so I think if you feel that call and you're willing to hear that call over all of the other screaming inside your head that happens as an entrepreneur, because there's a lot of other decisions that have to be made and a lot of other stuff that comes your way. If you're willing to hear that call above all else, absolutely go for it. You know, it's so good. I think another thing that really is amazing, some of the people that I know, their past, especially when they really dig in and figure out who they are, you know, obviously, if we can help people understand who they are earlier in life, I think they really, really benefit. But there's also this other thing that comes along that there's 20 or 30 years of 
digging and finding and understanding who you are. Some of those things make writers. Some of those things make school teachers later in life. And I've always, somebody, somebody told me one time, you know, you're starting your, your journey of entrepreneurship a little late. But the cool thing about that is, is you have so much more wisdom and so many more 50-year-olds and 60-year-olds do so much better in business and obviously because of the time they've got under the belt. So would, do you think that you are the entrepreneur you are today, or I guess, tell me what you think about this. Your, everything that you've done has been uh, steps and learning and under, understanding who you are and what you're capable of that you pretty much have now come to fruition. You're like, oh, okay, that makes a lot of sense now. Now I know that I have what it takes. I know who I am. Mm -hmm. I know I can't be stopped. Do you think that that journey, and describe a little bit of, of how that feels now, prepared you to be the entrepreneur you are today? And do you think you were always headed that way? I mean, looking back. I do think I was always headed that way. Um, I actually had a business before. Um, many many years ago, and for a hundred, re and it was when my kids were little, and for a hundred reasons, it didn't work out. Um, partially because I just wasn't ready, um, and I didn't. I don't think, in retrospect, I don't think I was serious enough about it to do what needed to be done then. I made a poor choice in business partner. It didn't work out. So I always knew in there somewhere that I was interested in being an entrepreneur. I think if you're someone who every job you've ever had, you look at the people above you on the org chart and think to yourself, God, I could do this so much better than them. It's not necessarily a commentary about those managers. It's a commentary about yourself and about that innate need to drive your own bus. I think what I needed was... I needed to have all the different experiences I had in all the different areas that I did. I mean, in, in hospitality, I de definitely got that, like, customer services king. In nonprofit, I got, you know, the passion part and that it's, you can always find something to be passionate about to push yourself forward. And then, you know, in the corporate world, I learned, you know, honestly, the value of money. I mean, it's it sounds... I mean, I'm not a nonprofit corporation. I'm a for-profit corporation, and and which was weird because I spent a lot of time working in nonprofit, and that's a mentality shift. And so that is understanding the value of the thing that you bring and having the confidence. Plus, it really gave me that foundation and a lot of the creative space that I had to know that I can do that and I can push that. And I also did a tremendous amount of stakeholder management when I was there, and stakeholders that were very invested both emotionally and financially in very large projects and it you know takes a certain talent to work with people that are operating at that level and and so those are some of the takeaways and so I but I just knew that I needed to do something that was mine that was my baby and I know now that I needed to wait for one my personal risk is as low as it's been since I was in my 20s because my kids are raised so I think that had a lot to do with it. So I'm like, oh, I can fall flat on my face, and I'm really the only one who's going to suffer. I'm confident enough now to know what I can and can't do. And I'm also, within that confidence, I'm also to a point now where I'm mature enough to not have a big ego about certain things. 
about if someone comes to me is like, well, do you do this? No, I don't do that because that's not an area where I'm good. I mean, I tried real estate photography. I'm just not that great at it. It's just not my deal, right? And it's okay for me to be like, no. And furthermore, let me refer you to another photographer right. who's amazing at this. Right. And I don't have an ego about that. And I think younger me would have had some ego or some insecurity about sharing. Yeah. yeah. And I also... Again, I had to believe my own press. I had to believe that the skills that I have are of value. And it's interesting because I do sometimes take for granted that people know the things that I know. And then I start talking and people glaze over. I'm like, oh, not everybody knows this stuff. Like I can't take for granted that everybody knows these things. So that means I have things to teach. And when that gets reinforced, you're like, oh, I have things to teach. And I'm articulate enough to be able to teach them, you know. And then I was able to, through the process of discernment, find a niche that I don't think is being filled. So then I can move into a space that is just opening up for me. Yeah. yeah. We're going to talk about your business in a minute, but mm-hmm. I, I wanted to highlight three things that you said there mm-hmm. that I think are super important. And it was you learned how to work hard in the restaurant business, so the work ethic you found your you found out what your worth ethic was mm-hmm. that work ethic is huge especially as an entrepreneur you found out in the second phase of your life passion because let's just face it nonprofits i've been a part of nonprofits almost my entire life and volunteer armies and nonprofits if you can lead those if you can gather people around something you have one of the most important skills to be an entrepreneur, in my opinion. That is, you're going to have to find something that when the money's not there, you're excited about. Yep. And then the third thing is learning about money. Mm -hmm. And I think you take those things, hard work, passion, and learn about money. We want to make some good money in our lifetime because we can can do so much with it. Yeah, and, and I think you can, and I also think it's not just about pure money, but it's about value. Yeah. You know, and I think that it's the idea of, and I did, I actually had to spend some time when I started my business evaluating my own personal feelings about money, you know, and about how people handle money and opinions that I had about people with money and how they spend their money or don't spend their money. And I realized that what, you know, that the great thing is that money is just, it's just something to move around. It's something that we get to choose what we do with. And I'm not by any means, you know, interested in becoming, you know, a bazillionaire. I don't know that I could in my line of work, but it's about what can I do to be fairly compensated at a value that is fair to what I'm offering. And then once I'm given the gift of that investment, then what can I do with that to not only, I don't know, maybe make it so I don't have to rely on my children when I'm older, but also then what can I do for my community? That's right. What can I do to give back? What can I do to then turn around and be the person that supports those nonprofits that I have wanted to support in my life and, you know, and, and turn that back around? And really, it's about that full circle of being a part of a community. Mm-hmm. In the end, doesn't it really come down to that? Totally. I, I think in the, out of everything, you take everybody's stories. And, and at the end, I know there's been some other people in my life that it's it's really all about community. We we love the community side of everything. If it's a running club, a hiking club, Adam's Hub here, it's all about community. Yeah. In the end, if you don't have that, you really don't have anything that's going to last. Right. So it's, that's so good. So a couple questions. So of the of your past, 
What are a couple of things, and they may be a little bit of review for people, because we've talked about some things that are really, really monumental in your, in your journey. Mm-hmm. But what are some of the things that you've done that, or that you've experienced that, you, that have changed? And you talked about one already that changed your trajectory to go out to, to, out to Virginia. Mm-hmm. But what are a couple others that you would look back and go, man, those were life changers. Those, those got me to where I am today. I would say the choice to leave Carson City to go to college was a really, really big one because I think that was the first big, unknown, scary thing I allowed myself to do and put me in a mindset of like, oh, I know how to do hard things and I know how to be uncomfortable and I know how to go someplace else and make friends and be fine because up to that point, I lived in the same house from the time I we moved here, you know, from Ely when I was five, all the way through I graduated high school. My mom stayed in that house until I was halfway through college. Wow. And then she moved just to a different house about a mile away. So I think that was probably a really big one that sort of set that trajectory for me that kind of was the, the beginning of that, gotcha. that path. Um, Anything else later on maybe in, in your uh, career and I, I would say, I mean, where I'm at right now, I think probably the biggest one was being so completely willing to just throw everything away and start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Everything, 2020. To look at it and be like, you know what? I am wholly dissatisfied with my life, and it is up to me to make a new one. Yeah, that's great. And then also be really, really comfortable with not having the answers right then, which I think is very important as an entrepreneur, and continually just asking questions and being curious about what's next, what's next, what's ne- but not be more into asking of the question than about finding the answer. Interesting. That's really good. Yeah. What are two people that you could tell, you could tell me or everybody that's listening, two people that have changed a mentor or whatever that's helped you change your life or change your who you are, I guess maybe you could give them credit. I would say one is I have a very best friend who I met when I was living in Virginia, and she is a general officer in the Army. And it's funny because I didn't meet her when I was working for the USO. I actually met her because she and I had kids on the same sports team in high school. And she and I became very fast and somewhat unlikely friends. And she is an incredibly accomplished person and is in many ways, you know, someone who from the outside, one could be intimidated by the amount of success she has had in her life. She's a West Point graduate, been in the Army for 30 years, is incredibly successful. And to have a friend like that look at me and hold me up and say and always support me and always value my friendship in and in a way that has always been so meaningful and just to, to love me for who I was even though I you know it's like on the surface of it could be like oh well I can't keep up with her and there was never any expectation of that and not only did she ever you know 
belittle me in any way if anything else she always brought me up and was like no you can do more you can do this you've got this you and she's such a great friend coach mentor beautiful supporter amazing fantastic That's friend awesome. is one and then I would have to say you know it's probably trite but my kids inspire me every day they have always been my best teachers wow the lessons ain't always pretty <laughs> <laughs> you know but but I a lot of people go on rants about kids these days. And I think that my children, a lot of their peers are so compassionate and wise beyond their years. And they know what they're willing to tolerate and what they're not. And they're willing to stand up for what they believe in, in ways that I think young people have not always been encouraged or appreciated to do. And it's not perfect, but I, I'm not, I think that the future is going to be okay in their hands. And I feel very positive that they're going to go on to do really great things. And I'm going to be honored to be a part of that. And really honored that they chose me to be their mom. And I could maybe hold on to them for a minute before I let them go off to do whatever it is that they're meant to right. do to the universe. Yeah. Well, you're a strong woman raising strong women. Which can be a blessing and a curse. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we talk about identity and I always like to ask this question because it's identity has been largely a word that's been spoken around the religious side of things and churches and and that kind of stuff but I believe that it's you know I, I believe that's true and I, I get my identity from God and my beliefs as a spiritual person and somebody who believes in in God and Jesus um, but what about you? How does identity play in that side of your life as far as religion and, you know, what is, what is that? How has religion affected you and or helped you or even hurt you? I'm what they call a cradle-to-grave Episcopalian. So I was, you know, baptized at St. Bartholomew's in Ely <laughs> and confirmed here at St. Peter's in Carson City, and I'm still an active parishioner there. But I would say that I am less religious and more spiritual. I, you know, I think like a lot of folks, I grew up in the church. It was something that I, you know, my mom always took me. We always went. We always did the things, and it was just a part of what we did. And then I think as some people will do, you get to college and you kind of drift away, and that's not your thing, going to, to a place to worship. But I think a lot of that in my young life was when I allowed myself the space to see that I don't know that God is, I don't think you need to go someplace or do something to worship or feel spirit in your life. And then when around the time that I decided to have a family, I thought, well, you know, this is something I really would like to look at. Do I want to raise my kids in any kind of tradition? faith tradition. And then I started asking myself, well, why am I a Christian? I mean, it was what I was raised in, but what does that even mean? Like, I never asked myself those questions. So I did a lot of, it took a lot of time to wander and sort of wonder through <laughs> my identity as uh, an Episcopalian, as a Christian, and what that meant to me. And I mean, I, I went all over. I mean, I, I went and hung out with Buddhists, and I hung out with, you know, I have some friends that are Jewish. And didn't dive much into the Muslim faith just because I didn't really have a lot of opportunity to do that, but even different branches of Christianity and did a lot of looking around like, why, why is this a thing that I do? And I ended up coming back to the Episcopal Church for a couple reasons. One is I think it's an incredibly tolerant faith. And when they say that all are welcome, they actually mean all are welcome. 
and I really appreciate that. I also really like that there's the traditional liturgy that is the same thing that my grandparents and my great-grandparents worshipped before me because I feel like that connects me back to my ancestors. And through the course of my journey and my travels kind of trying to figure out my spirituality, I ran into it. I met a, a young man, and he, his family was of Jewish heritage, but, he, but they weren't practicing, so he used to say they were Jewish. <laughs> and great kid. He was kind of troubled, but he gave me this concept of a God bucket. And so for me, I have a God bucket, which means I get to choose my experience, and I get to put all manner of whatever I want in my God bucket. And so that means, and it's kind of a mishmash, right? I mean, it's a lot of cowboy theology, certainly. It's got its start in, you know, the Episcopal tradition. It's got some Buddhism in it. It's got some Hinduism in it. It's probably got some tarot cards. I mean, I don't know. It's got a little bit of everything, but the beauty and the freedom is that it's mine. And to me, that is the biggest thing about my faith is that I get to pick that. It's my journey, and I get to choose how I identify with my maker. And I am a very, very strong believer in in having hope and and faith because I think those are phenomenal tools to get through the day when things are hard. And another reason why I enjoy being an Episcopalian is that, you know, my priest knows well about my God bucket. He hasn't kicked me out yet. So, you know, and because it is a group of people that is more about answers and less of, more about questions and less about providing answers. Because being human is very complicated and very wary of people that tell me that they have the answers to all of the hard parts about being human. That's, so that's as, awesome. as my identity, I don't know that I really go around identifying myself as a Christian, but I, I definitely, I, even though I practice in that tradition, but I definitely identify as someone who's very spiritual and has a very strong faith. That's awesome. It is one of the things I think is very common and everybody's story that they're living out. And I believe that there never stops, you know, it never stops. There's, there's always more to that rabbit hole. There's a rabbit hole we go down. I know my pastor, Tom, he talks about that all the time. You gotta go down the rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And you'll find you'll find truth if you'll go there. So it's 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 really awesome. And it obviously your experiences and everything you've gone through. We've talked about it before. Having that higher power, there's just nothing there's nothing like that. Especially mm-hmm. when it is just you. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. So let's tell me a little bit about your business. Sure. So yeah. So the business that I started is MCB Creative Inc. Now because I'm an Inc., which is super exciting. So I provide commercial photography and brand-based consulting, marketing consulting for businesses. And I take a very high-touch approach in helping people to take the vision for their business and then provide them with high-quality visual assets or marketing collateral or sometimes just consulting guidance in order to help them to grow their business And that very much started out in the commercial photography realm and has grown from there, which is really exciting to me that it's, you know, branched off into what I call concierge creative services. And that's everything from graphic design to brand development to some website development and other um, collateral needs for people to grow their business. So I, what I identified is there are small businesses that will go to, you know, Fiverr or Canva and use a lot of these free or very, very inexpensive tools to just get started in their business. And that's great. And it's amazing that those resources are there and everybody needs to start somewhere. 
And then there's the other end of the spectrum, which is, you know, larger, more established companies that have marketing budget, maybe they have marketing staff, and they can hire huge creative agencies to do all this stuff. There's a lot of real estate in the middle of those two bookends. And so that's kind of who I, who I work with. And it's almost exclusively project-based. I have two clients that I actually do ongoing work for on a more consistent basis. But other than that, it's almost exclusively, I need a logo. I need, you know, to do, you know, this photography project. I need to have this event done. I need to have this website. Yeah. yeah. And it's been amazing for me. I just as a, as a, what do you call it? A, I could give you a shout out and a client testimonial that you've helped me with a huge project I've got going right now. And, and obviously with you, you and I and Diane get together and we talk about business mm-hmm. and it's just been amazing. You have a ton of wisdom oh, thank and you. it's just been awesome to bounce things off of each other yeah. and, and grow. I, I, I say to Diane that you're my other boss. <laughs> I've just got to look at the to-do list and see what I've got going for whatever it is, a project I'm on. So but yeah, that's that's amazing, and your business is going great. Yeah, and it's been growing and growing, growing and growing. I mean, and this, yeah, I mean, the last three four months have been really really rewarding, and I'm really now that I'm a couple years in, I'm really starting to see, you know, that the fruits of my labors as far as a lot of the the connections I've made in that networking, a lot of the going out and. You know, just suiting up and showing up every day and telling my story and honing the story that I'm telling and continuing to, to be there. And I'm really, really starting to see that come back around, which is so awesome. Because, you know, there are times you're like, is anyone hearing me? <laughs> is right. anyone listening to anything I'm having to say? Do I have anything left to say? And so it's it's really cool to see some of the winds coming back around and in a way that I'm able to kind of, you know, expand out and get other support staff to kind of help me, and which is awesome. It's a That's- good a good place to be. That's great. Yeah. Growing and loving it. Growing and loving it. Yeah, it's awesome. So I have a couple last questions mm-hmm. here. And that one of them is if you had somebody that you were coaching and maybe they're having a struggle, be believing in themselves mm-hmm. or having a struggle, maybe finding the thread in their life that helps them get that, I guess that confidence. Mm-hmm. understanding who they are. They get mm-hmm. the confidence. I would say when you when you know who you are, you're powerful. Right. If somebody was on that journey and they're having a hard time now, what would you tell them? You know, I, I think it's some of it's that still small voice, but we're really, really hard on ourselves. I mean, we are all our own worst enemy. I self totally included. And so one of Actually, probably two things that have been really meaningful to me that I would advise to people is when in doubt, go talk to your best friend, right? Or learn to talk to yourself the way you would talk to your best friend. You would never talk to your best friend half the time the way you talk to yourself in your own head, right? And so if we can learn to talk to ourselves with the loving kindness and compassion to which we extend our best friend, then when you hit those roadblocks or you're like, this is not working out, well, your best friend would tell you, you know what, it might not be working out today, but it doesn't mean it's a bad idea. Or it's, it's a, you have a strong foundation. Maybe you just need to tweak something or stop that. You're being hard on yourself. Let's, let's see what we can do, right? So finding that self-kindness and compassion of that voice. And then a big one for me is I do not knee-jerk react large decisions. 
because a lot of the time we can be very emotional with our own businesses. I mean, it's a baby. I'm making a baby here, right? It's, you know, and nobody wants to be told their baby's ugly, but sometimes my baby's ugly and needs, you know, and needs some tweaking or whatever. And when anything comes up, whether it is something that I need to do or something that's not working or whatever, I will not knee-jerk react. I always give myself at least 24 hours, if not a little bit more, depending upon the situation, to get quiet and ask myself a lot, what's right? What's the truth here? Mm. What's the truth here? And if you sit with it long enough, you get to what's really bothering you or what really is the problem. Because not only professionally, but personally, I find that more often than not, the thing that you're having a problem with or the thing you're arguing about, the thing you're pushing against is so rarely what's actually wrong. So you got to get quiet and you got to just sit and ask what's the truth here. There's a ton of wisdom in that. That's some incredible coaching mm-hmm. advice right there. One last question. Yeah. What is your definition of success? Oh, my definition of success. You know, I, I will consider myself to be successful if I get to the end of my life and I know that I have been a positive contributor, that I've been a good citizen of this world, of my community, of my family, I think that's probably my definition of success because I feel as though I have been a good and positive contributor to the world around me. That's incredible. Well, I can tell you, you're you're more than well on your way and Diane and I just appreciate you and love you so much. Right back at you. And thank you for being here today. It's been such a joy, and it's been awesome to get to know you a little bit better. Thank That's you. one of the, the benefits I have on this end is I get to know friends so much better that you just never get to hear all the stories. So thank you for your stories. Thank you for your vulnerability and just such a, such a great, rich story. So thank you so much. Thank you very much for allowing me to tell my story, and it's just such a neat platform to be able to yeah. do this in in this way and i i love your podcast and i really have enjoyed listening to all the other people well, you've you. talked about and you have a great way of drawing out some thoughtful conversation out of people so thank you so much for the opportunity ken thank you very much everybody do if you need any any help in marketing the the things that she's talked about that she does um that's mcb creative it's mcb-creative.com oh boy better get that you know, right that's a tricky one mcbcreative.com was not available at the time, although I've been hounding those people for years to get it because no one owns it. It just isn't available. Right. So, yeah. So say it again one more time. It's mcb-creative.com. Awesome. Or and, on Instagram, mcbcreative. Okay. Mm-hmm. And let's do one more shameless plug. You are, I didn't do it justice, so let's do one more shameless plug. Okay. What exactly do you do? So I provide high-quality digital marketing assets and marketing consulting services to small businesses to help their owners fulfill the vision they have for their own growth. Wow. She has been practicing that. She That came off your tongue so awesome. Yeah. That's what we learned here at Adam's Hub. I know. you got to have that elevator pitch right? down. Yeah. you got to have that. Yeah. Well, so thank you so much for being on today. Thank you. All right. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you, Mary Claire, for sharing your story with us. I look forward to sharing our lives together professionally and personally. There are so many takeaways for me, but a couple that really stick out is how she had the faith to start over again, to start a new life. 
She was not satisfied with where she was, and she was willing to sell everything she has, all of her stuff, and start a new life, a new business, and new relationships. That is a testament to her faith and her abilities. She believed enough in herself and her identity to do something that was uncomfortable and scary. I loved Mary Claire's entrepreneurial story. She is living proof that if you use what you have learned throughout your life's journey, you can give back and help others with a business. Mary Claire, your story is inspiring, and thank you again for being on the podcast. You've been listening to the Who Do You Think You Are podcast with Ken Castro. If you want more of this or want to learn more about my community, go to www.endurancelead.com. That's www.endurancelead.com. Make sure you hit the follow button so you don't miss an episode. And thank you for listening. If you found this podcast inspiring, please leave a comment and share it with a friend.